Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 16 together for the next few minutes. But first, let's, let's pray once more and ask God for His help. Okay? Our Father in Heaven, we believe the words that we, we just sang together. We do ask You, Lord, to, to help our unbelief. We pray that You would you would strengthen our faith that Jesus Christ truly lived. He truly is the new and better Adam. And in His death and resurrection, He is the first fruits of a whole new creation of which we ourselves, as undeserving as we are, have been invited to partake as full sons and daughters in Christ's name. Help us, O Lord, to trust the promises You've made. Help us, O Lord, to trust Your heart to believe that you truly are as you claim to be, as you promise that you yourself will be. Merciful to sinners and powerful to save all who come to you. We pray that you would open your word to us tonight. We pray that you would glorify your son in order that your name might be glorified in our hearts. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray You'd use Your Word to that end. Help us, O Lord, to remember what it is to know You and walk with You. And help us, O God, to see ourselves, to see one another, to see the whole world through the, the right lens of the Scriptures. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, friends, uh, Psalm 16 is our, our text tonight. It's a psalm that is, uh, I know, very well known and precious to many of you. Is there, am I feeding back a little bit, you guys? Would it help if I back up some? The pulpit's got wheels, you know. Is this better back here? Okay, all right. <laughs> psalm 16 is our text. If you turn there in your Bibles, or uh, flip, or scroll, or whatever it is, tap. Um, I'm going to read aloud, and uh, we'll follow along. All 11 verses. It's a psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a beautiful psalm. And as with all the psalms, it is, it is full of profound truth 
And it is ultimately speaking of the Lord Jesus Himself. Now, let me preface tonight by saying this. Many of you are well aware of the profound power that relationships with other people can have in shaping us and transforming the way that we think about ourselves and our lives. Uh, some of you all, if you were to really think about it, probably there have been some folks in your past, some individuals in your life with whom you have had a relationship that has had a profound effect on you. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Maybe uh, as you were growing up, maybe you had a friend who was a, a good influence on you. Some of you know enough about my story, you know that I, I, came, I came to Christ and was introduced to the Gospel through a fellow on the football team. And my relationship with him had a profound impact on my life. There were also some people in my life in years prior to that and even afterwards who were not such a, a good influence on my life, but they had a significant influence on me. Some of you have had relationships with folks that you might consider a mentor or a discipler who have shaped the way that you think about yourself, the way you think about the Scriptures, the way that you view life. Many of you all here in this room have had a relationship with a spouse that has changed you dramatically over the years. Uh, I hope for the better, brothers and sisters, but that we have been transformed in our relationship with somebody else. This relationship has had a serious effect on us. Now, I bring that up because it is a truth that we see in the Scriptures that for a human being to have a relationship with their God, for us to have a relationship with the living God, has a profound effect on us and everything about our lives. In some ways, all the human relationships that affect us and influence us are just kind of shadows and echoes of that one relationship that is so transformative for us. To know Him is really to be changed, to be different, to see things differently. And in one sense, that is what Psalm 16 is about. Psalm 16 is about a lot of things. But one of the, one of the ways we can look at Psalm 16, and we're going to look at it tonight, is to consider the nature of a right relationship with God that David lays out in the first few verses, and then the way that relationship affects everything. From our relationships with other people, to our view of the present, to our hope for the future, everything is transformed by a relationship with the living God. So let's, let's get right into the text. I plan to just go through it line by line, verse by verse, and, uh, and make observations and, and consider it together as we go. Uh, the first two verses of Psalm 16, David is really laying out sort of the, the fundamental nature of what it means to have a relationship with God. And it is helpful for us to have a sense of what it really means to have a relationship with God. That is a, a term that in our time and place has become almost cliché, and for some people, it means just a, a vague spirituality or to have warm feelings towards God. But the Scriptures teach us what it really means to have a relationship with Him. And here David says, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. 
Now, I want to point out three things to you. To have a, a true, right relationship with God. It is not about mutual interests like we might have with a, a relationship with another person. You know, Joe Sikowski likes hiking. I like hiking. Joe and I might have a relationship based on our mutual interest in backpacking, right? Cannot have a relationship with God that way. We're not going to have shared hobbies. We're not going to go to the movies together. So what does it look like to have a relationship with Him? Well, for one, it is to make Him our refuge. Two, it is to honor Him as our Master and our Lord. And three, it is to enjoy Him as our good. I think we see all three of those things in these first two verses. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. David begins at the very beginning with seeking God as our refuge, with dependence upon Him. David begins with recognizing that he has a need for God and going to Him, which is a makes sense to start there. I mean, isn't that the, the beginning of all of our rebellion against God in the garden? Was a failure to recognize that we are dependent upon Him. A failure to recognize that we need Him. And rather than fleeing to Him, running away from Him, hiding in our own self-sufficiency. The beginning of a relationship with God really is turning back from that lie that we do not need Him, that we will be our own gods, that we will decide things for ourselves. And rather to recognize the truth that we are not like God. We are not self-sufficient. In fact, we are very needy. And in our neediness, we have rebelled against Him. And we are condemned by our sin. And, and not only are we needy, but we are helpless to meet our own needs ourselves. Helpless to, to find refuge in good works. Helpless to find refuge in religion or in any system of belief or in any relationship or any human power. To recognize that He is our only hope. And one sense is the, the first step in having a genuine relationship with God. It's not for nothing that the Lord Jesus begins the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they have nothing in their hands when they come before the Lord. Who recognize that, that they are utterly dependent upon Him. And if they're going to have any good thing, it's going to be because He gives it to them. That He is their only hope. Some of you know that uh, I have been in a, a long process of remodeling the house next door to me. Uh, my, my wife and I own the house next door to ours, and my mother lives there. We've been slowly remodeling the house. We did the downstairs. I'm working on the upstairs. I got off to a really slow start remodeling this house. I mean, the house is about 120 years old because it took me a long time to recognize that nothing in the downstairs was salvageable. Not a wall, not a ceiling, not the wiring, not the plumbing. Everything needed to be ripped out of that house. Right. The, found, the sill plates on the foundation were bad. And I did a lot of exploratory demolition. Tapping on this wall and tapping on that wall and testing this out and trying to salvage this and trying to salvage that before I finally came to the conclusion that it's all got to go. Every bit of it. And in the end, it was seven tons of plaster and lath and all kinds of cast iron, you know, 
plumbing stacks, everything had to leave the house. We had to start over from scratch. That was when the work of remodeling really began, when I finally gave up on the old garbage. Right? In a very real sense, in the same way, it is, it is like that with us. When we stop trying to salvage all the little scraps of our own righteousness that we've been clinging to, Stop trying to, to hold on to all these little pieces. Maybe this, is, maybe this over here is compatible with, with God's glory. Well, no, my friends, there is nothing about my glory that's compatible with His. And the first step, really, in having a relationship with Him is to recognize that I have nothing and I need Him and Him alone to be my refuge. I am not a hard-working but insufficient man who needs a collaborator in spiritual things. But I'm a lost and needy sinner who needs refuge from the storm that's coming. And God Himself is my refuge. That's the way David begins. The psalmist here cries out for help. And so all true faith does in the beginning. Cry out for help to God. I must have you and you alone. Now, David goes on though. In verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And you'll notice, uh, if you're looking at probably all of your translations in here in English, you're going to have the word Lord at the beginning of that verse in capital letters, all capitals, and then at the end in lowercase. Is it like that up there? It's not like that up there. Is it like that in your Bible? The first Lord is all caps? Okay. You know what that means, right? Yeah, the, the, the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, right? The, the all capital L-O-R-D is the English translator's way of indicating that the, the word in the original language there is the name of God. The name that he gave to Moses right there at the burning bush when Moses said, who, who am I going to tell them sent me? And he says, I am who I am. Right? The, the covenant name of God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel. That's the Lord. And the psalmist says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now the second Lord there is a totally different word. It's, it's a word that means master. It means king. It means ruler. So in effect, what the Scriptures are saying here, what the psalmist is saying is, I say to the God of Israel, you are my king. I say to the God of Jacob, you are my master. It is not enough just to depend upon Him for help. But to have a right relationship with Him, we absolutely must submit to Him as our Lord. Submit to Him as our King, as our Master. We are His by, by rights of creation, are we not? I mean, He did make us. We did not make ourselves. Nobody here gave themselves life. But not only are we His by rights of creation, but we are doubly His by rights of redemption in the Gospel. We who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ from our sin, we who have been purchased from death and from slavery, brought out of blindness and given sight, we were brought out by a great price paid for us, a ransom was paid for us. All the more so can we say with the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we are not our own, that we have been bought for a price. This is a significant thing for us to understand if we're going to talk about having a real relationship with God in biblical terms. Because it is very much the idea of the day 
that a person would have a relationship with God, whether in a Christian context or otherwise, for the purpose of using God for their own benefit. Right? For, the, for the purpose of the, the moral instruction that they might get. Or the, the emotional help. Right? For the purpose of the ends in their life being served by this God. But the real God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the Lord, He is not a servant of any one of us. In fact, we are very much His servants. We are His and we serve His purpose. And so the, the psalmist recognizes here, not only does he need God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, but also I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Master. He does go further though, and this is very significant that he goes further. Not only does he depend upon Him and submit to Him, but he does rejoice in Him and recognize Him as the good in his life. The second part of verse 2, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. Everything good that I have is in You. Not only do I need You, not only are You my Master, but You have been so good to me. And I rejoice to have You for my God. It is entirely possible, friends, to see our need for God, to recognize that we depend upon Him, and even to recognize that He is sovereign over us and submit to Him, but not have a sense of His goodness. Just a sense of the necessity of it. You know what I mean? Jonathan Edwards put it this way, it's entirely possible to write many, many words scientifically accurate words about the sweetness of honey and yet to never have tasted it yourself. There's a difference between knowing that it's sweet and actually having tasted the sweetness. And the psalmist here speaks in such a way, I have no good apart from you. Not just you're necessary. Not just you're the Lord, you can command what's right. But oh, you are the good in my life. You are the burning center of all that is blessed in me. Is you in my life. You hear the same sort of thing echoed a few psalms later in Psalm 34. When David says, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Not just obligated is the man who takes refuge in Him. Prudent is the man who takes refuge in Him. But blessed is the man because it is good to take refuge in the Lord. True faith not only cries out to God for help and seeks refuge in Him. True faith not only recognizes that He is the Lord, He is the Master and the King. But true faith also recognizes as well that He is good. That He is a good Lord to serve. That He's a good place to seek refuge. That His heart is for us and mercy. And that it is a pleasure to have Him in our life. So the psalmist, in very few words here, he, he starts us off with sort of a, a picture, a summary of what it is to be in a, in a relationship with the living God in that way. To depend upon Him. To recognize that He is the Lord and to serve Him. To follow Him and to recognize that He is good. Now, 
This relationship with God has an impact on absolutely everything in life, as I said earlier. And as we go through the psalm, we're going to see that in, in a few different areas. The first area that is impacted by this relationship is the relationship with others. This relationship with God has an inevitable impact on relationships with other people. It has an effect on our relationships with others. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The first effect in relationship that we see in having a relationship with God is that David has a delight for God's people. We have a love for the church and the people in the church. He says the saints in the land are the excellent ones. Those that are set apart by God in His own promised place, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight. Knowing God and being in a relationship with Him, it changes our view of His people in the church. It changes our view of the people that are called by His name. Instead of, like for many of us, for me, for a long time, the people in the church were largely irrelevant and sometimes irritating. I saw the people in the church as hypocrites. I saw the people in the church as self-righteous and self-important. Not that I knew them well. But when I did get to know them, I saw the very same thing in them that was in me, which is sin. And I judged them for it. But coming to know Christ, coming to be transformed by the Gospel, and coming to know God, it did dramatically and then progressively changed my view of the people in the church. Not because I discovered that the people in the church were, were suddenly not irritating in any way, or the people in the church, I suddenly realized that they were superior or anything like that. It's not, that's not the case. But as I got to know more of the God who loved the people in the church, so my love for the people in the church began to transform as I got to see more and more how precious that God is to me, as more and more with the psalmist I could say, I have no good apart from you, the people that are beloved to Him became more and more precious to me. I'll illustrate this for you. <clears throat> uh, you know, I have, I have six children, and sometimes things get left outside in the rain at our house. We have a trampoline in the backyard that people go play on, uh, people go outside all the time, they come back in, and sometimes stuff gets left out there. Socks, shoes, sweatshirts, toys. And because we have a lot of kids, and we, we have a dog, and we used to have some chickens, we don't have as much grass in the yard as maybe we would like to have. And sometimes when it rains, it gets muddy, and things that are left out in the yard can get a little bit muddy. And the other day, it was raining, and I came in through the backyard, and uh, I was kind of, I was moving quickly because it was raining. And I saw out of the corner of my eye near the trampoline something purple and white. And I looked over at it and I recognized it. It was a My Little Pony figure. It wasn't just any My Little Pony figure, it was Rarity. It's one of the main six. That's an important pony. I saw that pony and I literally gasped. 
because Pony Rarity was laying in a mud puddle and her beautiful purple locks were all muddy. I was stunned, right? As if like, you know, my, my phone or my Bible or something were laying in a mud puddle there. Now, what do I care about rarity? Nothing. Except there are some people in my life that care quite a bit about rarity. There are a couple little girls in my household that have a significant affection for rarity. And I have a significant affection for them. And there is a transitive property about that affection. You see? Because that little piece of plastic shaped like a pony with purple plastic hair, because that matters to my girls who I love, it matters to me. And I had an emotional reaction. <gasps> She's in a puddle. You, know. it, you, you see what, how, how this connects to the church. Sometimes in human terms, we, not, we might not have use for each other. Sometimes you might not like the way that I look. I might not like the way that you think. I might not like your views of politics. You might not like mine. I might not like your preferences or your parenting style or your philosophy about how you ought to spend your money. I might not like all. I might not like, not like your sense of humor. There's all kinds of things we might not. We might not have the same taste at all. But the one who I love loves you. The one who is so precious to me, he poured out his blood for you, and that should have a significant, profound effect on my affections for you. The more he is exalted in my mind and heart. You and I might have very different views on gun control. You and I might have very different views on you know, what kind of music is beautiful music. Oh, but Jesus Christ, the Lord God of heaven, who has been so good to me, and in, who is all of my good, He has called you precious and beloved. And that should matter. That should mean something to me as my relationship with Him deepens and grows. It is an unfortunate thing in our time that some people will say that they love Jesus, but they have no patience for His church. That they love the Lord, but they're not interested in His people. That they love the bridegroom, but they just can't stand the bride. I do not think that we see biblical grounds for thinking in that fashion. In fact, we see the very opposite here. David says to the Lord, I have no good apart from you. And your people, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, you've read enough about David's life story. David was not, not naive about what people were capable of. The man had literally been hunted into caves. But because he loved the Lord, he loved the Lord's people. Now, friends, have you begun to love the church? The Lord Jesus Christ does. I, I used to try to maintain that position where I would say I loved Christ, but I did not love His people. But it is not a tenable position. You can't live there. It doesn't last. Because the people of God are beloved to Him. As weird as we sometimes are, we are beloved to Him. As off-putting as we can sometimes be, we are beloved to Him. And that transforms these people and makes them lovely. Because when He loves them, they are lovely. The second thing about our relationships being changed we see in verse 4. 
First, the, the delight in the church is fostered by a relationship with God, but also a the opposite effect is seen in a relationship with the world. In verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. A relationship with God also results in a corresponding erosion of our confidence in and affection for the world. In part because we see the world for what it really is. And that's what the psalmist is really laying out here. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Many people and many of us, before we knew the gospel, and sometimes the, the, the waves of the same old feelings and passions of the flesh are there. Some of us used to believe that worldliness, the way of the flesh, was a way of never-ending possibilities. We used to think of the, of the law of God and the commandments of God as restricting, as restraining, as shackles. And if we could only cast those off and do as we please, there would be no end to the enjoyment that we could have. Well, the psalmist points out that it is the exact opposite that is true. It's not that the unending possibilities multiply for those that run after other gods and cast off all restraint, but rather the sorrows multiply. Those who run after many gods, those who worship other gods, those that, that will not submit to the God of Israel, they find themselves to be multiplying not only their gods, but multiplying their suffering and their sorrow as well. There is a hopelessness that we discover in the world when we begin to have a relationship with God. The psalmist goes on, though, he says, the drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Those things that, that I used to find precious and valuable, I now see as having no value at all. In fact, being offensive, rather. The world is not a place of great value, but in fact, worthlessness. And what we once saw as valuable and precious suddenly starts to become filthy. Drink offerings of blood. He finally says, I'll not take their names on my lips. I don't even want to speak of them. Sort of the opposite of, of name dropping. I don't even want to utter those names. As our affection for the church grows in our relationship with God, so our confidence in the world erodes. To turn to Christ in one sense is to turn our backs on the world. It's not to despise the world, not to belittle the world, not to, not to judge or condemn the world. Jesus said that he did not come to judge or condemn, but rather to save the world. But it does mean that we are to see the world for what it is and to have no confidence in it. I'll illustrate this really quickly. I shared this illustration with some of you at All Nations Church a few years ago, but my, my, I had a, a revelation about this a few years ago. My wife and I were watching a television show. It was on... This was, this was back when, when people would still have like rabbit ears and like get channels. And the show would come on at a certain time. But we were watching this show, and it was a drama. It was like a courtroom drama. And uh, this, this woman was, was married to a, a guy, and the guy treated her terribly. And there was some guy in the office 
uh, who was not her husband, that really understood her and really appreciated her. You know, and as the season went on, you know, it became obvious that, you know, she was, she was going to be unfaithful with her husband to, with this guy. And it was portrayed in the show as sort of a, you know, a cathartic. It was a deliverance. Right. She was she was not respected by her husband. She was not loved. But this other fellow, he really appreciated her, you know. And she was she was going to turn her back on her husband, and she was going to she was going to go be with this guy. She was going to commit adultery, and that was kind of the uh, the build up of the season towards the end. And as my wife and I were watching it, I started to kind of realize what was happening. Now, all the emotional components were there for you to be rooting for this woman as she pursues this adulterous relationship. And I started to realize, you know, wait a second. Why am I rooting for this? What's happening in my heart and mind that I am desiring what the world is saying is desirable? In fact, I mean, I'd been a pastor for a few years at this point, and I had seen the great suffering that adultery and unfaithfulness in marriage brings on people. I'd seen some of the pain and some of the sorrow, some of the agony and the wreckage in people's lives that this very sort of behavior brought about and the offense against God in it. And recognizing that sort of made me lose my taste for the television show. I did not have the same excitement about what was coming at the season finale as the writers of the show were trying to make it exciting because I knew what it really was. It's nothing like what the world is saying it is. It's actually something horrific. It's actually something demeaning and degrading and brutally painful to all the people involved. And uh, the, the excitement about this television show that my wife and I had been watching, it sort of just turned to ash in my mouth. You know, I didn't want to see that happen. Now, uh, that's a... That's a simple illustration, but you, you see what I'm saying. As we understand more and more of what it is to walk with God, our understanding of what's happening in the world changes. Our understanding of, of those things that we used to see as valuable, we used to see as precious, as good, we suddenly start to see them for what they really are. Not possibilities, but sorrows. Not something wonderful, but drink offerings of blood. And rather than, rather than wanting to be all up in the middle of it, I don't even want to speak those names. I don't even want to have those names on my lips anymore. To turn to Christ is in one sense to turn our backs on the world in that way. Again, not to despise the people in the world, but to see the world for what it is. So that's the first thing that we see in the psalm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to condense the rest of what I was going to say because I've talked for a long time about that. But the rest of the psalm, the psalmist goes on and he shows us that not only is our relationship with God, does it affect our relationship with people all around us, but it also affects the way that we view our very lives, both present and future. And again, we'll move a little more rapidly here. But first, it affects our view of the present in our lives. In verses 5 to 8, the psalmist says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. 
Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Because the psalmist knows the Lord, his perspective on the life that he is leading, his current circumstances is shaped and molded by him. First, he understands that God is sovereign. In verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of wordplay there. He's saying, you are the one that I've chosen and you choose for me. You know, a, a lot is the, the ancient world equivalent of, uh, you know, of rolling dice. It's a, uh, a, a game of chance. We're going to see what happens. But the psalmist recognizes that the, the Lord is the one who decides how the, how the dice land. The Lord is the one who holds His lot. All that comes His way, whether it's pleasure or pain, it is from God. He is the one who decides. That He is not exposed to random chance in His life, but He is directed and He's carried along by this God who He knows. Now the second thing He says about the Lord here is that He is good. In verse 6, He says in His... No, I'm sorry. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's probably thinking of the, the inheritance of the promised land. When Joshua brought God's people over and all the lines were drawn and they were given those plots that would be called an inheritance from the Lord. And the, the psalmist is saying, David is saying, the lines that God has drawn for me, He who is sovereign, He's drawn good lines for me. The inheritance that He's given me is good. He who rules over me, He doesn't just rule over me, but like Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, He works all things together for my good. The Puritans, when they spoke of God's sovereignty, they often spoke of His fatherly sovereignty. Recognizing that the one who sits on the throne and rules is also a father towards us. He's generous. The psalmist goes on in verse 7. He makes it clear that not only is he sovereign and is he good, but he's also near at hand. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This God who is there, he is personal and he is present with me. He is not aloof and somewhere distant, but he is right at my side. And even in the night, even when I would be all alone, yet he is with me. There as near as my very heart, and He is instructing me. And verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This God is also faithful. I have set Him always before me. Not set Him before me as like a little, you know, a little statue on my desk, but rather set Him before me as if I, I set the sun itself before me. I turn my face towards Him. I've turned my gaze upon the Lord and He will not move. He will not abandon me. He will not fail. Friends, it is very easy for us to lose our perspective on our lives in the midst of trial. It's very easy for us to lose our perspective on the present and forget what it means that we have a relationship with God. To forget that, that He, in fact, is in control. When we are out of control, it is very easy to forget that He is sovereign. When His sovereign choices don't line up with our judgment, it is very easy to forget that He is good. When we feel alone and abandoned, it is very easy to forget that He is near. And when He does not appear to be close at hand, it is easy to forget that He is faithful. 
But no, the scriptures are crystal clear about who he is. And he is crystal clear not only about his purposes here, but also in Christ's work and his willingness to go to the cross. We don't just walk by, by sight, but we search for God and find him in our circumstances. And come to the conclusion with Paul in Romans 8 again that he who sent Christ to die for us will not abandon us and will not withhold any good from us. Now, that brings me to the last thing the psalmist says here. Not only does our relationship with God affect our relationship with others, not only does it affect our view of the present, but it also affects our view of the future. Verses 9-11 to he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist says my heart is glad. But not only is my heart glad, my whole being rejoices. Not only are my, are my emotions and my mental attitude glad because of, of you, God, in my life, but my whole being. In fact, my flesh dwells securely, he says. Not just my mind and my heart, but my flesh, my physical body is secure, as well as my soul, because of you. Though I may age and die, though I will age and die, Yet you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let me fall to nothing in corruption. David is saying that he believes in the resurrection. There in verse 10. Now David had confidence and hope that God would raise him from the dead. And it is a fantastic hope that David had. That God who had been so faithful to him in his life, God who delivered him from Saul, God who delivered him from so many enemies, that he would deliver him even from death. I mean, it is a bold hope that David had that God's faithfulness would continue in that way. But the Holy Spirit tells us that this is not simply David's hope, but this is actually a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 32. This is the apostle Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter goes on and says, Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We don't know how much David knew about the prophecy that he was making. But what he looked at his own life and hope and said, surely God will not abandon me to death. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, this ultimately is about the Lord Jesus, who was not abandoned to death, but was raised up. And so as we look at this passage, where David is hoping in the resurrection to come, it's not just for the present now that my relationship with you, God, is a help to me. It's not just now that it's a balm to my soul, that it's medicine for me, but it is for all time because you will not abandon me to the grave. We look at this passage not just through the hope of David, but through the lens of the cross and recognize that it is a sure promise that he will raise all those who are with Christ. We look at this text through Christ and so with so much more confidence than David could have ever had that God will raise us up with Him. This is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 15. That if Christ was raised from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. And friends, we underestimate the power of believing in the resurrection, I do believe. We underestimate, we think of it as a far distant thing. Sometimes I think we think of it as just a hope. Wouldn't that be nice? We probably wouldn't articulate it that way. But in our heart of hearts sometimes, it is a far distant thing. David said his hope in the resurrection because of the goodness of God. We can put our hope in the resurrection because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. As we sang just a minute ago, so will we be when he comes. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. That we really will be raised again. Now the psalmist the psalmist goes on, and we'll end, I'll conclude just by, by summarizing. He says that God has made known to him the paths of life, that narrow way that Christ himself is the door. And in his presence there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is in Christ that we will arise in the presence of God in fullness of joy, and to be with him for all eternity is endless paradise with him. So friends, the question here tonight is, do you have a relationship with God? The kind of relationship the psalmist describes here, seeking refuge in him and him alone, recognizing that you cannot do it on your own, recognizing that he is the Lord and that he is good. And he's not only good in general ways, but he's good specifically in Christ and the gospel. Have you experienced that affecting your relationships with people? People in the church and people outside the church? Has it changed the way that you view the present in your life now? Is it changing the way that you view the present? And is there a genuine hope for the future? I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to strive after these things as you seek to know the Lord more and more. 
David was not unique in his relationship with God. In fact, in Christ, we know God better than David could have imagined. And friends, I would encourage you also tonight, if you have no sense of these things, and you do not know what it is to have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, that you would talk to myself, that you'd talk to, to one of the other folks here in the room and discuss that with someone before you go. Now, with that being said, I have taken my time, so let's, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to sing again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown us in the gospel. We thank you that you would humble yourself to know us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would have mercy on us. We pray that the fruit of knowing you would be more and more evident in our lives. That we would trust in you as you are, and we would be transformed. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would have a living hope in the resurrection. Because Jesus Christ, who died for us, was raised. Have mercy on your church, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.